This is Design Safe Radio, where natural hazards researchers strive to make our society more resilient to everything nature throws at us. Welcome to another episode of Design Safe Radio. Today we've got Jason DeYoung from uh, UC Davis. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the uh, centrifuge um, virtually behind him anyway. Jason, it's good to see you. Yeah, you too. Glad to be here. So, uh, man, can just before we get into the questions for today, and since you've got the hardware behind you, can you give us a little bit of background of how you came to be at UC Davis and what is that big thing behind you? Yeah, I my story of uh, coming to UC Davis is actually kind of a circular one in that I was an undergraduate student here um, back in the early 90s. And after finishing undergrad here, kind of made my way around uh, to Atlanta, Georgia Tech for graduate school. Then a stint in Australia, actually as a postdoc, then at University oh, wow. of Massachusetts. Started my faculty career out there and then they had a job opening and you know it's one in a million where you can actually go back and work at the same place um, you went to undergrad, let alone I actually grew up here. So oh, cool. uh, from that standpoint, it's been really cool. So I came back here in 2005. Um, and then over the course of time, I just become more and more involved in uh, the centrifuge and center for geotechnical modeling and, and everything that we're about. So it's been a fun journey, uh, but it's been really nice to be here for the last 15 plus years. Time flies. Wow. <laughs> so, crazy. Yeah. So anyways. So that's that's uh, that's kind of the story. Um, the centrifuge. This is a large one. We actually have two facilities: uh, a nine meter radius centrifuge and a one meter radius centrifuge. Uh, what you see behind me is the larger uh, of those two. You can see uh, kind of over um, off the one side. You can see kind of the center spindle, and from there, measuring out to the end uh, of it, which is kind of this big centrifuge bucket, um, is about nine meters. And so it's it's really large device. Um, the model containers that we put uh, inside that have like physical models of whatever you want to simulate, whatever kind of natural hazard loading you're trying to understand, pop into the end of that bucket. And then as you spin, and as this thing rotates around, the faster and faster you spin, that entire bucket actually hinges up. And when it hinges up in that process, and this thing is, the, your, your model is basically vertical, spinning really, really fast around the centrifuge uh, rotunda. And through that, you can simulate G level. So actually I have a little, this is slow motion because otherwise we can't be in there, but this is the, uh, this is my fun background. So you can see this thing rotating around the center spindle, that's the counterweight. And then you can see coming by here, it's gonna knock my head in a second. Uh, right there is the container oh, on it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and it's like, and, and, it, and it goes by. So. Um, the model is basically sitting level, as you can see, but you can imagine this thing not going, you know, a small fraction of, of, uh, of a rotation per second. Um, this thing will go up in excess of one rotation per second. Whoa. And at that point in time, uh, it's flying, it's moving really fast. But on the end of that container, then while all that's happening, you have all the data acquisition, you have the model, you're simulating the earthquake and everything else. So it's really, it's a really cool piece of equipment. Uh, it's a huge toy, which gives us unique capabilities that argue, arguably no other platform uh, can give us. So it, it fills a very specific uh, kind of niche in it. Yeah, so, which is a great segue to our first question for the day. Thank you. Yeah. So for, for those who 
don't know or, or unfamiliar with this type of work, can you kind of explain how engineers use centrifuges like this to research natural hazards like earthquakes? Yeah, I, I think um, the term centrifuge is a physical device that, right? So this is a very large version um, of a centrifuge and the very small version back from high school biology or chemistry lab and you, you spin a little vial and you see how the, the different um, solutions kind of separate out based off of their weight. It's all the same principle. And the principle is just generating a hypergravity platform. And that is, we are spinning this around. And as we spin faster and faster and faster, the gravitational field goes up. And so we obviously live at 1G. And on a device like this, and on, and on a smaller device, and, and you, you can create G fields anywhere from 1G up to, let's say, 200G. Oh, uh, and so, so wow. that's, a, that's a huge amount. Yeah. Um, we oftentimes aren't testing in that those very very high levels, but in this in this device behind me, for example, um, we'll often spin at let's say 50 g, and so you're spinning fast enough, so you're generating a 50 g um, gravitational field, and in that hypergravity field, you scale stresses and lengths appropriately, proportionally. So if we had a let's say a one foot high model of a little embankment or a dam and we're at 50 times, then we're actually simulating the stress profile from a 50 foot high dam, uh, but it's only this big. And so mm -hmm. that, that proportional scaling is amazing because wow. we can do things and we can provide, we can simulate real world systems that we can't really do any other way. And do the physical properties of things like steel and sand scale pretty well, or do you have some kind of filtering equations that kind of account for things that yeah. don't scale so well? Yeah, uh, yes and yes. Uh, some things some, some, some things scale really well, and it's just a straightforward, like stress is, is very uh, direct. It's just proportional to G, and that's it. There's other aspects um, in, say, in, in terms of modeling, um, diffusion a lot of times with earthquakes we get these excess pore pressures and then the time rate of diffusion in order to get that right then you have to start scaling the pore fluid and that can become a little more complicated oh uh, okay or if or if you have structures um you can't just take let's say a steel structure and put and use steel on the centrifuge because you have to to scale not the absolute properties of the materials, but the properties of the members and their yield, their yield stress point and their failure point and some of these other things. And so it can get a little bit complicated. You usually can't match everything, but you can match a lot and you have enough flexibility where you can choose, hey, I think these things are important. I'm going to scale those proportionally. And then through my analysis of the model and the results and the translation of that to the real world, to full scale, then I can, I can use my equations and I can use some numerical simulations to kind of bridge that gap on, on some of the things that we can't nail down perfectly. Mm. So if you're looking at how far a, a uh, bridge piling deflects or something, you can look at the, the yeah. stress, the strain, the elastic and plastic deformation, but you may not care so much about the, you know, the poor uh, diffusion of the, the water underneath the water table. Yeah. You, you have a choice, right, of, of what you'd want to highlight. I think one of the great examples of this, uh, actually that Bruce Cutter, one of the former directors did, um, is the BART tube system. The BART system is our underground transportation system in the, in the, in the Bay Area. 
and they were concerned about the tunnel that that basically connects Oakland with San Francisco. And there's a there's a BART tube that lays across the bottom of the bay all the way, built 80 years ago, 90 years ago. Oh wow. Um, or so. And um, they were really concerned because that's full of air, obviously, with the subways going back and forth, that in an earthquake, that buoyancy could result in that buried tube potentially popping up. And oh, if wow. it popped up, then you, you would have cracking and infilling of water and everything else. And so yeah. Bart came and talked to Bruce and they were working with Fugro and everyone was kind of all tied together. He said, all right, let's model this thing. And we didn't try to model the exact BART tube. We didn't try to model the exact subsurface conditions, but they through some modeling, they said, these are the main mechanisms of how this thing could fail. Now let's build a, a model, which is a little bit more simple, but will really reveal those mechanisms. We studied that, they did a few amazing tests. They took those results and then working with numerical simulations, they arrived at the conclusion that, hey, good news, in fact, that, that, that tube as it currently exists is, is fine. It can handle the earthquake, the predicted earthquake loading and you don't have to go out there and spend a lot of money doing a lot of fixes. So that, I feel like that's always kind of one of the great examples of where you can take a real world problem, distill out the, the mechanisms that you think will govern its failure, study those, and then go back to the real world system. But we didn't have to worry about, oh, they use rivets and all these types of things and putting a tube together. Yeah. You know, that's not relevant to the problem, so we can set those aside. So it's really neat when you have, when we have those opportunities, when we have people from industry or from the real world either coming with a specific problem or just coming with a problem that they've encountered many times. And then that can kind of drive some of the research that we do. Wow. So it's yeah. A, and it's a, cool, I mean, uh, it's a cool opportunity. That's amazing. A huge, huge success story there, there too with, I mean, yeah. just thinking about the, the scale of that tube and you know, things like the big dig in, in Boston and like, yeah. I mean, that's billions of dollars to do yeah. fixes to that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think that that centrifuge test program was maybe a couple hundred thousand, including some of the numerical simulations. And I don't know the exact price, but, you know, the, the, the ground remediation in the field would have been on the order of tens, maybe pushing 100 million. Right. So it, it's really it, it's really finding those problems which are very costly and there is some specific uncertainty. And that's sometimes a space that we can move into and provide really, really good answers. Yeah, that's um, awesome. Yeah, it's fun. So your expertise is a bit different than most of your colleagues there, a little more specific and frankly cool sounding. You, yeah. you specialize in biogeotechnics, which sounds like something sci-fi. Can, can you describe kind of what that is and... and how we how you use that to um, help with the natural hazards engineering side of things? Yeah, it's a it's a fun story. It's uh, the whole world of biogeotechnics came about um, kind of around two thousand I don't know three two thousand four. We started dabbling in it. We're one of uh, kind of the early explorers, if you will, of this whole concept of trying to link biology and biological aspects of the natural world with engineering and the hard fixing of things, so to speak. Um, and, and we were involved in it early on. There's a few other people in the US, a few other people internationally that kind of have dabbled in it. And now in the last five years, eight, 10 years in particular, 
it's really grown and become, you know, a lot of people are kind of working in that space. And so for me, um, you know, the, when, we, when we started out, we were just trying to do one thing. And all we were trying to do was trying to learn how to control bacterial activity in the ground, through the, through the environment, through the chemistry in the, in, the, in, the, in the pore fluid, and to facilitate the bacterial activity, and then for them to facilitate precipitating or binding particles together. And, wow. and, and in order to make that become cement or cemented soils. Actually, there's another, here you go. We want to change out our backgrounds. Oh, there we go. That's what happens like at the small scale, oh. right? Those are individual sand grains. You can't see the bacteria, but then the, the binding between the particles that you can see there in this kind of lighter color, that's mm -hmm. actually what uh, we're doing. And we're cementing those pieces together. Oh. So this began kind of as, hey, this is a crazy idea. Let's spend some time trying it out. Um, and it worked. <laughs> so you uh, found these bacteria that under certain conditions essentially make the sand particles around them bind together like cement. Yeah, they will bind and they will, and they will become very stiff and very rigid. And so you're essentially creating a sandstone. Wow. Um, type material. And so that was, that was something, you know, the first test, it took 18 months to get like one test to work. And that was the first master's thesis. <laughs> And then it kind of grew from there and we tried and, and, and kind of went on. And, and since then, the, the whole field's kind of split into two parts. There's one part which, um, which is called biomediated uh, ground improvement, if you will, or biomediated geotechnics. And really there, the biology is mediating some natural process in order to change the engineering properties. So that's like what I just described is we have... We have bacteria mediating a chemical reaction, binding particles together rigidly. And now we have a rigid stiff block, which has high shear wave velocity, high stiffness, high strength, dilatancy, et cetera. And it is much more resistant to liquefaction. Wow. And so that's, that's, that was kind of the first one. And then about five years later, people started saying, okay, well, how about bio-inspired or biomimicry as people might have heard of? Uh-huh. That's different. That's, saying, that's very different. Yeah, that's different. That's saying I see ways in which biological organisms behave in nature and they do things really efficiently. Maybe I can study and I can understand the form, the function, the shape, the behavior of those things, and I can translate it over. So another a cool example of that actually it, it comes from research my colleague Alejandro Martinez is doing. And in that one, they have studied the underbelly of snakes and they have recognized oh. that the belly of snakes are different based off of what material they move across because they need friction what? in different ways. Yeah. So they look at tree snakes. They look at, I mean, they actually got preserved snake specimens from a, a museum and <laughs> the bellies of them and they figure out like, What's the texture of it? They analyzed all those shapes. They wrote some software to characterize them. They extracted the important pieces. They've taken those important pieces and then they have used them on piles and pile foundations to change the texture of the surface to make it behave much more efficiently than what we do ordinarily day Whoa. in and day out. So those are the two. It's like biomediated. Let's let biology control engineering process which is hard for, 
for engineers yeah. to, to become comfortable with. Right. And then the other one is let's make stuff that looks or functions like natural processes. And we'll try those out and try to gain some efficiency in, in performance. Both of which are, are kind of way outside the norm yeah. uh, of construction driven, uh, you know, steel, concrete, high energy driven brute force contracting uh, building of stuff. And so it's been a, it's been a really fun space uh, to explore. And it, it's always kind of mind stretching and make you think of things in a new way. So, yeah, fun. the first time I came across something like that was a few years ago. Someone was looking at like thermal efficiency of termite mounds and yep. how to translate that to architecture and, and do like passive cooling instead of more active, you know, HVAC and desert environments. I'm like, that is wacky. Yeah. A lot, you know, what's really interesting is a lot of these processes are so much more efficient. Um, they have, they're efficient in how they are built. They have the benefit of being able to grow naturally. So that, that part's really different, but they're also very efficient in terms of their performance. So if you take whatever performance metric you want, and you normalize that by the size of the object or the total mass of material that you're using or whatever else, there are factors of efficiency. Sometimes we see things 20, 40 times more efficient than what we do. Wow. And so then you, you sit there and say, okay, well, we know how to build things the way that we do currently really safely. So we, so we, we know how to do piles and we can make them be really, really safe. But then you can say, okay, but trees can do this also mm -hmm. and, and trees stand up pretty well and they can handle high winds and they can handle a variety of conditions and in fact their capacity in terms of say pullout capacity is about 20 to 40 times better than our piles are wow on a on, on a per mass basis or a per mass comparison wow so then you gotta say well we don't have, we're never gonna do exactly the same thing that trees are but if we have, if we have a, a factor of, of 10 or 20, certainly we can improve what we do. Yeah. And so that, that's what we're trying to explore. We're trying to explore that space and say, how could we push more towards biological systems that, that can be that much more efficient? That's cool. <laughs> it's neat. And the creativity that's required and the creativity that you see in students doing research in it. And when you get colleagues together, it's really neat. Yeah, that's gotta be a really fun space to to be around and um, some, some may be familiar with, there's actually a, a center for this, um, mm -hmm. the Center for Biomediated, Bio-Inspired Geotechnics or CBBG for short yep. at Arizona State. Um, can you kind of talk about the relationship between uh, you guys at the NERI facility at UC Davis and, and that center? How does that, how do you guys work together? Yeah, it's, it, uh, it's a fun one. So. Back in 2013 or so, there was the National Science Foundation put out a new call for um, proposals for engineering research centers. And engineering research centers by NSF are, are kind of a, they're, they're a 10-year um, award for a conglomerate of universities to really make uh, accelerated progress in a particular area. And it had been a long, long time since anyone in civil had had one. And so Ed Cavazanjan out of Arizona State uh, and myself, uh, and then David Frost, uh, Georgia Tech, and Paolo Bandini at New Mexico State, um, we were involved in that process then of putting together a proposal and bidding, um, and eventually being fortunate to be one of the successful 
recipients of a grant back in, in um, 2015. And so we are, we just began year seven of the center. And so the, the network of those four universities um, together um, is focusing on accelerating this development of biomediated and bioinspired geotechs, the examples that, that, that we are talking about. Um, in total, inside of that, there's a portfolio of about 20 some projects, 24 projects, maybe of different ideas. Some of those projects are linked and they're actually part of larger efforts. And some of them are trying new exploratory things that people have never tried before. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that, that's kind of the overall objective. But remembering NSF's mission of get to the field quick, get, get these things deployed. One of the things they require are test beds. And so test beds are platforms that are standardized to help people compare performances between different technologies and to get a glimpse about how will these technologies work in the field. And so, I mean, the Centrifuge, Center for Geotechnical Modeling, right? The NERI facility, oh, yeah. perfect. And on top of that, we've already, as we had already been up and running for decades, a couple of decades before NICE and then all of NICE and NERI. So there was nothing to build at that test bed because it, it was in, in place. The expertise is there. Ross, Ross and Dan are running it. We, we have the know-how. They're involved in CBBG and everything else. And so I was like, hey, this is perfect because we need a facility. We need a capability like the centrifuge, you know, the NERI facility. We need that in order to get these biomedia and bioinspired technologies to try to help them accelerate to, to field and to field deployment. Wow, yeah, I mean, because otherwise you'd have to, you know, I couldn't even imagine building the centrifuge today. It would be- <laughs> Overwhelming. <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That, many, the concept, many, many millions of dollars and probably impossible. <laughs> yeah, it would be a big stretch. Uh, if we could do it, it would be cool, but it'd be a big stretch and so, uh, we are very glad as, a, as the CBBG, putting that hat on, to have this facility already up and running. The other campuses have built out other facilities to help um, with this, mm -hmm. but have it be the centrifuge facility already be existing, already with NERI funding, provided an unmatched, really, opportunity in terms of getting some early trials and some of the different technology. So that's been really, really useful. That's great. Um, you mentioned already that, um, you know, you've talked about some of these projects like this, the snake skin piles um, and some things that you're working out with uh, mimicking trees and things. Are there any other of those projects that you can you can talk about um, and, and how they're how they're going? Yeah, there is. Um, so that, there's a few. So on the biomediated side. Um, we've certainly been doing this MICP, this cementation binding of what's behind you. We've been doing some of that in the centrifuge. And so actually here's another photo. Why not? So there, there's a cemented block that was built in the large oh, wow. container. Um, and then, so that was one zone, which had a large cemented block. We placed foundations on it next to it. There's another one which has open space and then there was smaller and then that was popped into the centrifuge, spun around, and then between spinning, then we have all these little small foundations models. Those are really tiny, right? Oh, but yeah. Those are modeling a kind of multimeter by multimeter foundation, individual foundation dimensions. And we can compare the performance uh, of those things. So that was, that was one. 
Um, another one that's biomediated is, is totally different. It's generating gas and it's, it's generating nitrogen gas in the ground. And the, the whole key of, of microbial induced desaturation, which is led by Ed Kevazanjan and, and Leon Van Passen at Arizona State, is the, the microbes generate gas. They generate the gas as small bubbles. It desaturates the soil. And when the soil, when the, when the water has become desaturated, as you have the gas bubbles inside of the pore space, it now becomes compressible. And if it becomes compressible, then you can't generate the pore pressure. So it's, uh -huh. a, different, it's a different way to prevent liquefaction, not by strengthening the bonds of all the particles, but now changing the properties of the pore fluid space. Wow. And making it more compressible so you cannot get the RU of one the the, the uh, liquefaction one of the liquefaction criteria so they've done centrifuge testing um, they've used the one meter centrifuge and built small models they generate it at 1g and then they spin up and that one's spinning at 80g in the small centrifuge and you have to wait because the gas bubbles and everything have to come into equilibrium oh yeah field, so you got to wait a little while and then you can do your series of tests and then you spin down. And, and, and the, fun, the funny part is that on some of them, we spun down a little bit fast. <laughs> when you spin down, the release of stress because the G field is going down results in all the bubbles expanding. And you're looking at your model and it's, it's like it's burping. There's all these little pop, you know, these things popping in and out. Yeah. But nonetheless, the, you know, the early tests on those also showed you know, the potential for success, which was important in their process for the MIDP, the desaturation work to, uh, to go to the field. So, and I think actually we have a previous interview about some of that field testing up in Oregon um, yeah. around the uh, Portland- um, You got uh, it. In infrastructure- um, Port of Portland. Uh, yeah, the Port of Portland. Yeah, and that was with, that was in combination with Oregon State, right? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So that's that was that that field project was a follow-on of some of the centrifuge work that was done here, and we have similar kind of stories of, of trying to push stuff to the field on the cementation side. So those are those are two, I think, pretty interesting projects on the on the biomediated, and then on the bioinspired. There's one which is the snakeskin one, and Alejandro has tested that for static loading in compression and in tension as well as cyclic loading uh, up and down, kind of trying to simulate offshore, uh, you know, wave loading conditions and things like oh, that. Yeah. So it maps really over that. In, uh, offshore wind energy scenarios, which is a huge expanding market right now in the U.S. for sure. Totally. So there's a, there's a, there's, there's unique aspects for that. It's also been talked about in, in use in, in tunneling and use on geomembranes and use on a variety of other things. So, that's that. That's the snakeskin part, and then the other one is um, we are we are actually just getting ready to do some testing on the small centrifuge with different root-inspired mm. uh, kind of foundation or anchorage systems, and and looking at shapes, which again aren't completely or identical to any natural root, but they take the critical elements in terms of its its geometry in terms of its shape, and put those into a more simplified form. And then those, and, and they're at least early on, we're using 3D printed models. And then we're testing those at 1G right now with a robot. And then we're testing them in the centrifuge uh, coming up here. So cool. there's some projects, there's a couple, a few more kind of in the queue with, by Paolo Bandini at NMSU and a few other people. Um, so we kind of have this steady line of, of work and the steady demand from the center 
for the Neary facility. So it's been a good, it's been yeah. a good match. That's great. I, it kind of reminds me of another project that's uh, went, on, went on at uh, the Neary facility at Oregon State where they were looking at uh, the effect of mangroves um, on uh, tsunami and storm surge inundation. Yeah. And, you know, by the nature of Neary being a network, that's got a great opportunity for, hey, let's test this with the, you know, earthquake focus at, at UC Davis and then maybe test that same structure and see how it does in terms of resisting storm surge at Oregon State. Yeah, that's the neat, you know, that's, the, that's one of the, the really enjoyable pieces about the Biomediate and Bioinspired Center is that it's funded as, um, as an approach to developing new geotechnologies. And its application and what problem you're solving is, is actually quite varied, right? And so we have exactly what you're saying. We have people who need the centrifuge for the earthquake loading in particular. We also have other people in, in the team who are doing you know, mangrove erosion type of problems and the, the, the tsunami, the wave, the wave basin at Oregon State is kind of a perfect candidate for that. Um, and so there are different demands, if you will, hazard demands that, that different groups of people or different research teams within CVG are taking a look at. And so it's a nice, it's, a, it's again, a nice combination between those where we have technologies emerging from one group and we have these established shared use national resources um, kind of provided through NERI. And, and there's just a lot of, of, of things that align. It's really, really cool from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the longer Neary goes along, not to do a sales pitch for another five years of, uh, <laughs> of, of re-up after this, this new award, which thank you, Joy, we appreciate you. Um, but I mean, things like the, uh, the Wave Tank uh, team at Oregon State and I think it was the University of Washington who actually built a smaller scale tsunami wave generator for the centrifuge. Yeah. And so you can go back and forth depending on the scale that you need. Yeah, we have that. And so that was, uh, I think it was, or yeah, Oregon State and UW, maybe it was together, but Oregon State, yeah, they, they built a, a container for our centrifuge, which could, which could develop, which could generate and, and, and induce wave loading, sim you know, simplified tsunami wave loading on, uh, on the beach, essentially on, on the shoreline. Uh, and so we have those capabilities. You've also looked at other things. We've, we've looked at, you know, can we, how could we model wind loading in a controlled manner oh, wow. in the centrifuge? So it's kind of funny because you got all this wind going around, but you need yeah. to go in a more controlled manner. So we can eat, we, we've already done it in terms of just actuators um, pushing on, on structural models, which are trying to mimic some of the characteristics of wind loading. That's a really simple way. Yeah. Um, People have asked if, you know, can we test, you know, parts of uh, wind turbine blades or something like that on the centrifuge? We've talked to people about um, what could you do with respect to fire and be able to study some effects of, of, of gravity, of, of, of heightened uh, gra uh, gravity fields on how, how flame and how, 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 how uh, burn propagates. Oh, wow. Um, we've talked to other people about, Hey, what, you know, if we could, if we could really control the temperature, well, what if we did permafrost? What if we did, Oh my, uh, what if we did, what if we did glaciers? Right. So there's a work that was, or, or another one, uh, this came from someone else we were chatting with is like, what if you built a model and you actually were to simulate like, like fracturing of faults or 
or ocean circulation, ocean current circulation. So a lot of the, the a lot of ideas I'm kind of mentioning are actually in a recent report because we held a workshop about a year ago, maybe not quite that long ago. You lose track of time in COVID. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but, but a while ago, right? 10 years ago. I don't even know anymore. I, I have no idea. I haven't aged that much. But yeah, 10 years ago. No, it was last, it was last fall. We 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 held a workshop like internationally, and everyone just jumped on Zoom for a couple of days. And then people have written different things up. And we just recently released a report, which was basically all these people with these kind of wild ideas writing down, hey, you know, hypergravity fields could be used for a whole host of things well beyond just our conventional geotech earthquake loading. Not that there's not a lot of problems there still to solve, sure. but actually what, what hypergravity platform, what centrifuge modeling has done for geotech in the past 30 years I think it has, we think it has a potential to do that for a lot of other fields, which oh, yeah. haven't had the opportunity to, to, to do it yet. This is giving me a great idea for some, uh, a model centrifuge at our booth at AGU in December. Yeah. You know, talking to all these environmental scientists and, and oceanographers and space scientists and, you know, all these other people who aren't exposed to your center. So yeah, there's a whole host like that, that whole hypergravity thing. There's a whole host of things that you could take a look at. I mean, we were contacted by someone else who was actually looking at um, this from the industry side, but someone else contacted us because they were curious about uh, ejection seat performance in jets um, oh, yeah. during, during particular failure modes. I'm like, hey, you know, I remember that from Top Gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can see why the center future work well for that. Yeah. Right, so yeah. uh, so so it's it's exciting, and I think the the Neary facility provides unique capabilities for CVVG, but actually for a whole host of people who just haven't thought about it or or come to understand what what services it can provide. So we'll cool. see if we can grow into those areas. Yeah, that's great. Oh man, we could talk for hours, and probably someday we should over a beer or three uh, whenever all we kinds of stuff again. Exactly. Uh, where can people follow along with your work, uh, the CBBG and also the uh, Centerpiece Center at UC Davis? So there's uh, for CBBG. Um, if if you search CBBG uh, at ASU, then you'll find the main webpage for the center, and they also have the, some of the normal social media outlets, um, kind of highlighting uh, you know different things that are going on uh, there. But there's quite a bit uh, available on that webpage, not only just about the research side of things going on, but there's a large uh, education and outreach um, component as well. And so we have developed uh, modules for education, both for uh, K-12, but actually also for undergraduate classes. So, you know, if there's other faculty who want to insert uh, a half a lecture or a lecture or two on, on biogeotechnics, all those resources are there. And so that's a great place uh, to take a look. Um, and then for the Neary facility uh, at UC Davis, the Center for Geotechnical Modeling, uh, same thing. We have obviously the web page through Neary, um, and that's connected, and the campus hosts that, and that kind of gives you the, the more the kind of the facts of the resources and what it takes, and 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 what what are, what the tooling we have. Um, also, some you know Facebook and some other uh, media outlets too, where social media outlets where we just post you know from time to time what, when things are going on, um, and then also just contact us. I mean. Ross, director, Dan Wilson, associate director, myself, anyone else, if you've got questions, you've got ideas, or you, know, you want to write a proposal, NSF, anyone use a facility or, or whatever, 
uh, you know, just take a look at it. Um, we've, we've posted, we've been able to stay pretty active. We were, we were closed down for only about two and a half or three months when the, the pandemic first hit. And then, and then through UC Davis and working out all the safety protocols, we were able to go to a partial in-person capacity to keep our testing program going. So we've, we've been able to stay busy, not, or active, I should say, not, not at full capacity or anything, but plenty busy to, to continue to have projects kind of going through and have some really neat uh, kind of exciting results with things. So yeah, I think you guys are one of the, one of the more prolific uh, testing facilities, not that there's, you know, comparing apples to kumquats really yeah. <laughs> exactly. you're able to have six people on site at once and it's like all right who's ready to spin today let's go spin um, yeah exactly right so we so i mean we, we've had times where we've had you know six different teams like you said not individuals but six different teams two to four people each all at different stages moving around and it's it's madness but it's it's fun yeah right and then at the same time during the pandemic we still had points in time where we had three teams on site all working in different rooms or in different buildings and spacing. So, you know, like everyone else, there's all the, the oh, protocols yeah. of how you walk through the building and what order and what sequence and all that stuff. But it's, it's worked out really well. Yeah, it's been really safe. And uh, we've still been, been, been spinning the large centrifuge and been spinning the small centrifuge a lot. Uh, so that's been, it's been good. We're, we've been glad to, to have things kind of keep on moving through. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Continue to see the awesome things that you guys do out there, and uh, always a always a pleasure to talk to any anybody from the crew out there. You guys are a really fun group. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Design Safe Radio. This show is sponsored by the National Science Foundation Grant Number One Six One Two One Four Four. You can subscribe to Design Safe Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please leave us a review so we can improve the show. Please also help others find our episodes in iTunes. Thanks for your feedback and support. You can find out more about Nary at designsafe-ci.org, on Facebook at Design Safe Radio, or on Twitter at Nary Design Safe.